Hey guys, my name is Caleb Brazier, and I'm one of the pastors at The Grove, and so glad that you are here joining us, I guess joining, uh, if you will, through Facebook, uh, but so glad to connect with you here this morning as we continue through our study in the book of Philippians, trying to see how we can fight for joy in our lives. Paul writes over and over again in this small letter uh, about joy, and so how then are we to find joy in our life regardless of the circumstance. That's the question I want us to wrestle with as we look through this book. And so Paul is here writing to the church in Philippi, and he's writing to them from a Roman prison. About 10 years after he planted the church, uh, Paul's in Rome, uh, he's got shackles around his feet, and he writes this letter to encourage the church that he helped plant. Now, Paul has an incredibly warm relationship with this church. You can hear it, goodness, we heard it last week in the first eight verses. Paul writes with affection and joy and thanksgiving. Uh, there's a great relationship he has with them. That doesn't mean it's void of problems. Uh, Paul's going to address a specific division in the church in chapter 4, but the overtones of this book are joy and gratitude, and you can feel the relationship that Paul has with this church. And so as Paul last week we saw uh, was talking about how he prays with joy every time in remembrance of them. So Paul is praying constantly for this church. He's praying with joy. But what does that prayer look like? What does the apostle Paul pray for the church that he helped start, particularly while he's in prison? That's the question that we will get to answer in our text. Today, in verses 9 through 11, we get the prayer. We get Paul's prayer for this church. He writes it out for us. I mean, verse 9 begins, And I pray this, colon, and then he goes into it. And this is a, a beautiful example of how Paul would pray for people, uh, maybe if he didn't know uh, certain things that were going on in their lives. So I'm sure with Paul's friends, as he kept up and knew specific things that would happen, would pray for specifics in his friends' lives. But here, he doesn't know everything that's happened in the church in Philippi, but Paul still prays for them. And he prays just these general good Christian things. And this is a, a great example for us to be able to pray for our church or to pray for members of our churches, uh, to be able to say, well, I maybe don't know exactly what's going on, but I can pray these words. I can pray the prayer for the Grove Church that Paul prayed for the Philippian church even if I don't know the specifics of what is happening. So we can walk through our membership directory and pray this prayer for every single person. There are other prayers that Paul prays for churches that he writes to. And so just go through your Bible, highlight them, underline them, pull them out, copy them, put them in a prayer journal, and just pray for our church. Pray for, if you're at a different church joining us here this morning, pray for people in your church these things, even if you don't know what's going on. So this is the where we're going to be focusing in on Paul's prayer for this church. Now there's three aspects of the prayer I want us to, to see here this morning. We're going to be looking at the focus of his prayer. We'll see that in verse 9. Then we'll see the result of his prayer. We'll see that in verse 10 and 11a. And then we'll see the goal of his prayer in 11b. So those are kind of mile markers where we're going to be headed this morning. The, the goal of his prayer, uh, excuse me, the focus of his prayer, the result of his prayer, and the goal of his prayer. So first, the focus of his prayer. What is Paul hoping for? What's the kind of substance, the thesis of his prayer? We get it right off the bat, verse 9. And I pray this, that your love will keep on 
growing. All right, stop right there. So that's Paul's focus, love. And not only love, but he wants the love that they have that is growing to keep on growing. Notice their love isn't static. Paul assumes their love is growing, and his prayer is that it will keep on growing. Paul is concerned about their love. Now, we don't get an object here. Paul doesn't say their love for one another. Paul doesn't say their love for God. He just says their love. I think he leaves it vague like that to be kind of all-encompassing to include both vertical love of God and horizontal love of others. Paul just wants their love to keep growing. But before we move on, we've got to do just a little bit of work in defining what love is. Because if we aren't careful, we might find that we are more informed by culture or by music than we are by God's word and what love is. So when you hear love, what comes into your mind? Butterflies, rainbows, Right, uh, Nicholas Sparks' novel and are adapted into a movie, whatever it might be. Uh, what is love? What pops into your mind? You think of uh, the many songs that have been written about love. Uh, Pat Benatar uh, wrote this thesis that she believes love is a battlefield. Uh, another uh, couple wrote, uh, Anna and Hans, wrote that love is an open door. It didn't work out too well for them, so maybe that's not the best way to go. A foreigner in the 80s just wants to know what love is. So what is love and how does the scripture talk about it? Is it even that important? Well, Paul's praying for it here and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes this in that famous love chapter that he writes. He says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And Jesus, when asked, to sum up the entirety of the scriptures, responds with this, love God, love others. Or even just summed up in one word, love. So love is important in the Bible. It's the greatest of these. It's the summary of the law and the prophets. And what we see the expression of love is not self-exalting. It's not asking, what can you do for me? How can you make me feel? It's self-emptying. It is others-focused. Right? I won't get too much into it because this is what Paul writes about in chapter 2. He says, look at Jesus' life. Look at the way that he laid down his life. He left heaven, came to earth, and died. That's what love is. It is self-sacrificing. It is self-emptying. It looks not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. It has the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. And the way in which he loved us is the way in which we are to love others, which is uncomfortable, which is sacrificial, which is costly. Friends, Christian love will cost you. It will make you uncomfortable. It will not just be easy. It is self-emptying. And as long as we think that love is just a feeling, then we'll only do it as in a, only in as far as it makes us feel good. But when we look at Jesus and his life and how he loved us, we are then driven to love in different ways. We are then driven to love by laying our lives down, by serving others, by doing things that are uncomfortable, by making decisions that might cost us because we want to do it for the sake of others. I'll, I'll 
push pause on that because we'll get more in that in chapter two. But Paul is writing saying, that's what love is. And I want to see that love grow and grow and grow in your church. That's Paul's prayer. And may it be ours as well to see that kind of love growing in our church. But how does that love grow? How do we want to see that love grow specifically? Do we just pray? Does it magically happen? Do we sit back? Well, no, Paul gives us two things here in verse 9. You see this. So Paul says he prays that your love will keep on growing in what ways? In these two ways, in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. In knowledge and in every kind of discernment. Paul says you want your love to grow? Well, you have to know what it is that you love. Paul is putting forward the idea that it is impossible to truly love someone that you do not know. And in order to truly love them, you have to know them. Right? Paul, Paul is wanting to make sure that they know what is right, what is true, what God is actually like, and not just worshiping some God of their imagination. That their knowledge of God informs their love of God. And he said, I want to see that knowledge increase. I want to see you open up the scriptures, get lost in the scriptures, see who God is, see his nature, see his character, see what he's done for you, see his promises, see what he saved you from, rest in it, revel in it, hide in it, and memorize it. Know God. Know him. Because as you know him, then your love for him will increase. Paul is tying together knowledge and love. Now, elsewhere at Corinthians, he wanted to make sure knowledge by itself puffs up. That You have to have love as well. There's a way to have knowledge and not love. But here he's saying, we need to make sure we can't have true love without knowledge. This is true of any relationship. If I began here to tell you how much I love my wife, her beautiful blonde hair and her, the way that her blue eyes sparkle in the sunlight when she walks out in a Florida summer afternoon. And I began to just, to just wax eloquent about uh, how beautiful she is. That sounds great, except for the fact that my wife has brown hair and brown eyes. And if she was listening to this and heard me talking about how much I love her, maybe even I began to be emotionally moved by how much I loved her, but I wasn't actually describing her, how is she going to respond when she hears that? Uh, Let me just tell you, it's not going to go well. But I know, Leah, I know you're watching this. I I know you have brown eyes. I know you have brown hair. I know you, and I love you. I, I, I know the one that I love. Friends, do we know who God is? Have we opened up this book and allowed God to define himself? Have we looked to see what he's revealed himself to be, who he is, his character, his nature, what he loves, and do we then submit ourselves to it? Do we allow this to inform our opinion of who God is? Or do we kind of set this aside and kind of create this God that we want in our minds? Well, friends, if we worship a God in our minds that's not in this Bible, how do you think he will respond? No matter how passionate or how emotional we might be, he will not respond well. That is in the truest form, idolatry. Worshiping something else other than God. And and I, I am at times concerned that we have grown to love a God that is found in our mind and not in the Scriptures. Do we know him? Is our love growing in knowledge? 
just one of the practical ways you can do this right now during the season, join our men's and women's Bible studies. We just want to open up the scriptures and see who God is. Uh, we're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament and looking for Jesus in John's gospel. So join us. There'll be links uh, up in the description. Just click on that and we'll send you the Zoom link and would love for you to join us as we seek to grow in knowledge so that our love will continue to grow, so that we be able to say what is true, what is right. But notice, Paul doesn't just say he wants their love to grow in knowledge, but also in every kind of discernment. Isn't that a strange phrase for Paul to talk about love and is now talking about discernment? Well, let me put it this way. If knowledge deals with what is right, discernment deals with what is best. Discernment begins to put legs on the foundational truths that we know. So uh, let me put it this way. If, if we want to grow in knowledge, we, maybe we read about our love that we should have for spouses. So for me, I look at the love that I should have for my wife. See Ephesians 5, that I should lay down my life for my bride as Christ laid down his life for his. That I am to uh, not seek after lust or uh, adultery, but I'm to be faithful and uh, in this covenant relationship with my wife. Those are foundational truths. We see those in Scripture. Those are great. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. But discernment then takes that foundational truth and puts legs on it. Begins to ask not just, am I to love my wife? How do I best love my wife? How then do I discern how those foundational truths play themselves out in my life? It's taking what is right and then choosing what is best. And that as our love grows, it grows not just in knowledge, but also in discernment. As we then, that love begins to grow, it then begins to spill out, and we are able to discern the best ways in which we can love others. We love God in our knowledge, and then we begin to love others in our discernment. And again, you see there the summary of the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. What is best? See, if we just know that we're supposed to love others, yet we never put that into practice, we don't really know what it means to love others. If we know we're supposed to love our wife as Christ loved the church, and yet we don't do anything, we don't really know what this means. And that's the danger of knowledge separated from love. But when love is then put into action, it then really starts to have legs as we discern how we are supposed to walk forward. We have to have the foundational truth of knowing what is right. But we also need the discerning truth of knowing then what is best. And that as that happens, our love keeps growing more and more. As we practically put that love into our life, into our relationships, into our church, and into our work. And so this is the focus of Paul's prayer, that they would keep growing in love. So the focus of his prayer is love. But what is the result of that prayer? What's the result then of that love in particular? Well, Paul gets to it in verse 10. He says, so that. So, okay, you, you hear right there. Paul's about to say, here it comes. This is the reason. This is the result, the fruit, the consequence. I want to pray that your love would keep growing and knowledge in every kind of discernment so that, here's the result, you may approve the things that are superior. Now, some of your translations may say best or excellence, NIV and the ESV, superior, best, 
excellent. What Paul is laying out here is he's saying, I want you, now that your love is growing, I want you now to go and choose the things that are best for your life, the things that are superior in your life, the things that are excellent for your life. This is kind of an extension of Paul talking about discernment. He's saying, as you look around, it's choosing what is best. And what, though, is the choices that we are making? What exactly is Paul talking about? Well, I think he clarifies it in the rest of the verse. He says, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I think Paul here is describing uh, three different ways of saying the same thing, pure, blameless, filled with fruit of righteousness, he's talking about us looking like Jesus. He's talking about us obeying and and obedience, following what it is that God has said. Talking about is the the theological word is sanctification, of us looking more and more like Jesus, being pure and being blameless and being filled with the fruit of righteousness, being holy. And so the, the result of Paul's prayer is purity. That the focus is love, but the result is then purity. It's blamelessness. It's righteous. It's holy. But notice the way that Paul describes it. He says that I hope that you'll be able to approve not just what is right, but what is best, what is superior. As Paul writes about obedience in your life, in my life, as Paul writes about fighting sin and temptation, Notice Paul doesn't just say, hey, I want you to approve the things that are true, although they certainly are. He doesn't say, I want you to disapprove of the things that are wrong, although that is true. Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi is they would approve the things that are superior, that obedience, they would see it to be best, to be excellent. As Paul is saying, this is my prayer for you. And fighting sin and temptation, that you would then see that there is a better way. You see, saying no to temptation isn't just denying yourself of something that you want. It is convincing your heart that there is something better. Namely, that Jesus is better. That obedience is superior, that purity is excellent, that righteousness is best. That is what is at the heart of the Christian life. It is not just walking through, kind of begrudgingly going, oh man, here's all this fun stuff I want to do. Oh, but I can't do it. I've got to follow Jesus. No, at the heart of it, Paul is saying, I want your love to grow so that as you then know truly who God is, and then you see the way in which you are to love others in a self-sacrificial way, that as you walk through that, that love is growing, you can then look around and temptation comes knocking at your door. You can look at it with a, with a heart that is filled with love and go, you know what? There's something better than that. That following Jesus is better than that sin. Listening to Him, worshiping Him, obeying Him, striving for holiness is better than whatever fleeting pleasure sin is currently throwing at me. I know it's the real thing and not the counterfeit. Listen, I've convinced myself to be able to drink Diet Dr. Pepper when I'm eating meals. But if I have a real Dr. Pepper and then try to drink a Diet Dr. Pepper right afterwards, I can't do it because I've got the real thing. And, And I can taste the counterfeit. 
Friends, what, what Paul is writing here is he's saying, live your life abiding in Jesus Christ, knowing him, your love growing and knowledge and every kind of discernment. Know the real thing so that when the counterfeit comes along and the enemy throws at you any kind of temptation or sin, you can look at it and go, nope, I've got the real thing. I'm going to choose and approve what is superior and I would be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness because this is better. Jesus is better. Friends, that's how we live the Christian life. That is how we fight the enemy. We abide in Jesus. We know him. Our love for him grows, and we see that he is better. This is exactly what Moses did in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here's what the, the author's saying. Uh, Moses lived in Pharaoh's court. He had uh, all the wealth that he could imagine, all the opportunity and privilege in front of him. And he instead chose to go and suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Now notice it is pleasurable, but it is fleeting. Of course, sin is attractive and pleasurable, but it will never last. It is here and then it is gone. And Moses goes, nope, I'm going to suffer rather than go after that. Why would Moses make that decision? Why would Moses choose that? How would Moses discern what to do and approve what it is that he did? Well, the writer says this, for, because, here's, here's why, here's the why. Why would Moses do that? Because of this reason. He considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. You hear Moses' perspective? He said, hey, I've got the fleeting pleasures of sin and anything I could want in this world here in Pharaoh's court or I could follow Christ. I could, I could uh, go and for the sake of Christ consider reproach. But this is better. It's better to suffer with his people and follow him, to be close to him and to know him than to be here in the fleeting pleasure of sin. To, to go and follow him is of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Being in the presence of God, following him, obeying him is better. Jesus is better than anything this world could offer. That's what Paul's getting to here. And that's the result of love. The result of this prayer is purity, is blamelessness, is righteousness, and it's approving the thing that is best. What I can promise you is that people that are greedy, people that hoard their money and hope that, that they'll find security in their savings account and not in a savior, and this isn't just rich people. Rich people aren't the only ones that are greedy. People that don't have much money can be just as greedy holding on to it and, and with clenched fist, hoping that they can somehow find joy, satisfaction, control, or security in money. And I can promise you that those people, no matter how much money they have, the richest person of the world, if that's their perspective, they will not be as happy as the person who is generous. You know how I can say that? Because God has made us to be generous people. And we find joy whenever we are generous. Why? Because it reflects the very heart of God. 
Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, look at the generosity of God. He gave us the greatest gift this world has ever seen. He gave us all that heaven had to offer. He gave us his son. He was rich, but he became poor so that we who were poor might become rich. He says, so you too should be generous. We should model that heart, both because it's who God is and also it's where our joy is found. And so Paul is saying, approve what is best so that we may be pure, so that we may be blameless, so we be filled with the fruit of righteousness and blameless in the day of Christ. Paul tacks that on there at the end to say that as we are living this way, we should live in view of the day that is coming when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. That as we wait for that day, there are two different kinds of waiting. Right? If, you're, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're listening and you're not a Christian, the judgment that awaits you is one that you will not be able to stand. You stand before this judge in your sin and there is no hope against the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. As we stand in his presence in our own sin, his wrath then will be poured out on you unless you turn to trust and follow Jesus. That, that is what is waiting you. And it reminds me of when I was younger and had to go into the principal's office, I'd gotten in trouble. I sat in that room waiting for the principal to come and I could sense the judgment that was coming. And it was not a pleasant way to wait. But there's another analogy that I want to give. And the second way in which we wait, there was another day that I was waiting on January 12, 2013. I was waiting at the end of an aisle in a church surrounded by friends and family. And I was waiting for doors to open in the back of that church and for my fiance to walk down that aisle and become my wife. And as I waited that day, it was a different kind of waiting. In joy, anticipation, the doors swung open and tears began to flow. And when she came down, there was a different kind of waiting in that moment. And if you are a Christian and we look to the day of Christ, it is that way that we look forward to that day. Except it is not the bride walking to the groom. As the Bible describes it, it's the groom that's coming for his bride. This is the relation between Jesus and his church as he's coming to get her. This is how the Bible ends as Jesus is coming then for his bride. And so this is Paul writing for the result of that prayer to be one of purity, to be blameless, as we are also driven to fight sin because of the day that is coming. And all of this comes only through Jesus Christ. Right, John 15 talks about how we are connected to the vine it's the only way we can bear fruit. It is the same here. The only way that that fruit of righteousness is born is only if it comes through Jesus Christ. So that is the result of his prayer, is purity. What's the goal of his prayer? We'll close with this. The goal of his prayer is praise. You see this in the last half of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. Our obedience and our holiness, our purity, our blamelessness, ultimately, the, the goal of it is to glorify God. It's not so that we might be viewed a certain way or have a certain reputation, but our works are directly connected to God's glory. Je Jesus says this again in that same passage in John 15, verse 8. He says, My Father is glorified by this. How is God glorified? That you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The chief end of all of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That as our love grows 
it then produces this fruit. It changes our lives. It, it changes the way we interact with one another. It, that love grows and grows and improves certain things in our lives that are now superior and best and excellent. And all of it then, as people look at our lives, it's not that we might be great, but the people might look at us and then glorify God in heaven. That the way in which we live says something about the God that we worship. What is your life saying about the God that you worship? In interactions you have in restaurants, with waiters or managers, people in interactions you have driving down the road, interactions you have with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with your boss, with your coworkers, around a water table, with your taxes. What is your life when no one else is looking? What does it say about the God that you worship? Friends, our actions say something about God. And may we live in such a way, may our love grow in such a way so that when people uh, see us, when our light is shining before others, people may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May that be the goal, the end of all of this, that as we live, as this love begins to pour out into relationships, into worship, into fighting sin and striving for holiness, that the goal of all of it is people would come and they would worship, praise, and glorify God. May it be true of us. May that prayer be true of us, that we would find love, purity, and praise. May they find roots here at the Grove. Let's pray. God, we pray these things be true for us. We love you and we thank you that it is possible in and through Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.